Acts chapter 24, verse 17 through 25, 11. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we uh, bow before you with grateful hearts for your grace, for your love, for your forgiveness, for your guidance, your will in our lives, your providence that covers us day by day. We are so grateful to you, Father, and, and we recognize our responsibility to be growing in grace and knowledge of you, our responsibility to be growing and changing into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll help us to do that. We thank you that you've given your spirit to us to indwell us and to fill us, direct us, control us as we yield to you so that your word may be lived out in our lives. Father, we ask you to guide us in this study. We want to thank you also for the salvation that you have provided through your son Jesus, for his willingness to go to the cross, for his willingness to take our sins upon his body so that we might have the hope of eternal life simply by putting our trust in what Jesus has done. Father, it's always our prayer that those who come in our first or second service have had a time in their lives when they've trusted Christ. If there are any this day, Father, that are here now or will be here at the second service, we pray they would trust Jesus as their Savior. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is against me. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that? Everything is against me. I wonder if Paul felt a little that way. We're going to find out in today's passage. We're going to pick up where we were, where we left off last week in the middle of Paul's defense against the charges brought against him by the Jews. And we're going to pick up there, but we're going to find out that Paul languishes for two years in Caesarea while his case is undecided. I wonder if he ever said to himself, everything is against me. You see, he had God's promise. We've seen that already a couple of times. God promised him that he would go to Rome. That was the great desire of Paul's heart. You might even say that was the dream in Paul's life, that he might be able to get to Rome and preach the gospel and have some influence upon the lives of believers and see unbelievers in Rome come to faith in Jesus Christ. That was a great desire. But it must seem so far away. It must seem so far away. One devotional writer put it this way, though God had promised that Paul would preach the gospel in Rome, the great apostle had to endure more than two years of Felix's refusal to decide his fate. In addition to this imprisonment, Paul was subjected to long stretches of time during which he could do little but trust God and wait for him to act. There's that word, that four-letter word we hate, right? Wait. Wait. The writer goes on to, to ask, 
What do you do when it comes to the issue of waiting on God? Do you become anxious? Do you become angry, discouraged? Few things test our patience and faith like being forced to wait, which perhaps explains why our sovereign God often puts us in situations where we have no other choice but to wait. He wants us to learn to put our faith and our confidence in Him. So what are you waiting for? What is your dream? What is your goal? What is your objective that you thought that by this time in your life God would have fulfilled it and yet He hasn't? What do you do when you feel like everything is against me? Well, that's what we're going to look at as we go through this passage this morning. But I want to pick up two years earlier when Paul is on trial, we started to study this last week in chapter 24. Paul is on trial before Felix. The Jews have made three charges against him. The first one was sedition, political subversion. The second one was heresy. And the third one was sacrilege. One by one, as we saw last week, Paul is answering these excuse me, charges against him. In verses 11 to 13 that we studied last week, Paul answers the charge of sedition by saying he wasn't in Jerusalem long enough to gather a following and instigate a riot. In fact, he did none of those things while he was in Jerusalem for such a short time. He answered the charge of heresy, that is that Christianity was not an outgrowth of the Old Testament, was not an outgrowth of Judaism, but rather an illegal religion. That's what the Jews were trying to say. Paul answered that charge in verses 14 to 16 by showing that Christianity is an outgrowth of the Old Testament. Christianity, the way as they called it in that time, was the fulfillment of Israel's faith. The fulfillment of Israel's faith. He dealt with three things in this answer to the second charge, the charge of heresy. He dealt with the Old Testament's teaching about resurrections, the resurrection of the unrighteous, the resurrection of the righteous, and he and he talked about the fact that what he is teaching about the resurrection is not heresy. It's not out of bounds. It comes right out of the Old Testament. And so Paul talked about that. We also looked last week, we began to talk a little bit about worship. Paul connects, and, and uh, this is, this is uh, a fantastic truth. Paul connects worship with belief in the Word of God. Paul connects worship with the teaching and study of the Word of God. And we talked about that last week. I just want to mention uh, one more quick thing about it, and we'll move on to the third thing, the third answer to heresy, which is Paul's good conscience. Uh, worship can be defined this way. It's not an atmosphere. It's not an activity at a certain time in a certain place. It is a whole life response to God of honor and adoration reflected in obedience to His Word and in a lifestyle acceptable to God. You see, worship goes way beyond 20 minutes of singing on Sunday morning. Worship goes way beyond that. 
Worship is a whole life response to God. It's a response to what we know of God. It's a response to the character of God that we see in the pages of the Bible. And it's a response to Him. We see unacceptable worship in the Scripture. Unacceptable worship, Malachi chapter 1, is going through the motions. That's unacceptable worship, going through the motions. Unacceptable work is treating God as a good luck charm. That's what they did in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 and following, where they brought the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield because they were losing, and certainly we need a lucky charm. And so they treated the Ark like a lucky charm. That's unacceptable worship. It's unacceptable to worship without obedience to God's revelation. It's unacceptable to worship without obedience to God's revelation in His Word. That's why it's so important. That's why I think Paul links worship and the Word. Why he links worship and the teaching of the Word. And then finally, unacceptable worship is worshiping the wrong things. That is, worshiping the created instead of the Creator. Uh, Psalm 135 Verses 15 and following talks about that. So that's some idea of unacceptable worship. Acceptable worship is a whole life response to God of honor and adoration. It's reflected in obedience to His Word and a lifestyle acceptable to God. That is worship. One more thing I'd like to say about it. A.W. Tozer wrote a lot about worship. He had a lot of criticism of the church of his day about how they worshipped and what they called worship. And he said this, Worship, I say, rises or falls with our concept of God. That is why I do not believe in these half-converted cowboys who call God the man upstairs. And if there is one terrible disease in the church is that we do not see God as great as he is. Well, when Paul answers the charge of heresy, one of the things that he does is to connect worship with truth. To connect worship with truth. That's, that's one of the reasons, uh, and this, this is just an aside, but that's one of the reasons that we on the praise team are careful to choose songs that have good theology. And when a song doesn't have good theology, I don't care how singable it is, we don't use it. Theology stands behind every song, like the songs we sang this morning, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Great theology in there. Glorious grace, great theology in those songs. We're not going to use them if the theology is not right. So that's, that's worship. The third thing that Paul talks about is conscience. He says in verse 16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Uh, Paul says the third thing is that his conscience is clear. He's not causing anyone to stumble. He's not offending anyone by what he's teaching because what he's teaching comes right out of the Old Testament. It comes right out of what some of the very Jews who are accusing him believe. Paul says, my conscience is clear. 
Uh, remember we said a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the issue of conscience. Conscience isn't my standard. Conscience is the witness inside me that I'm either living up to my standard or not. If my standard is the Word of God, then my conscience tells me, am I living up to the Word of God or am I guilty of not living up to the Word of God? That's what conscience does. It's a witness. It's not the standard, but it is the witness to whether we are living up to the standard or not. Paul says, I'm living up to the standard. I'm living up to the standard of the truth that I'm sharing with you. I'm living up to the standard of that truth. And what I'm sharing is the truth out of the Word of God. It's not something I've made up. It's not a heresy. It's something that is from the Word of God. And I'm teaching that to you. That's what he says here. Uh, one writer said that conscience is the witness without, within mankind that was affected by the fall, but can still be a guide for both believers and unbelievers. In fact, Romans chapter 2.15, and that's uh, chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, it's a good passage to know. It's a passage that talks about the fact that even unbelievers have a witness, their conscience witnesses to the truth of the law of God. Their consciences, the, consciences, the conscience of an unbeliever witnesses to the truth of the law of God. That's Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. Unfortunately, however, also 1 Peter 4.2 says that an unbeliever's conscience can be seared. Seared as with a hot iron. Conscience can help believers in several ways, the scripture says. Romans 13.15 says that conscience can help believers to have a right relationship with government. That's Romans 13.5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 says that the believer's conscience can help them have a right relationship with their employer. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 19 tells us that conscience can help us to have a right relationship with each other in the body of Christ. With each other in the body of Christ. Well, that's Paul's answer to... to uh, the first two charges against him, the charge of sedition and the charge of heresy, his answer to the charge of sacrilege is found in verses 17 through 21. If you'd look at that section with me, after an absence, Paul says, of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this, there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before, uh, what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it is this one thing. I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Verses 17 to 21, Paul answers the charge that he cre created a disturbance in the temple by doing something sacrilegious, by bringing a Gentile into the uh, inner sanction of the sanctuary of the, of the temple itself, the place where no Gentile was supposed to be, and therefore they accused him of sacrilege for doing that. Paul said, 
what I was doing was so far from sacrilege, uh, I didn't bring anybody into the temple. But, but secondly, Paul is saying, I came to Jerusalem to help Jewish people. I brought offerings for the Jewish people. When he says, I brought offerings in verse 17, bring gifts for the poor and to present offerings, Paul is talking about his people, his nation, his love for the Jews. We see that all throughout the, the New Testament writings of Paul, how much he loved the Jews, how he loved the Jews so much. Uh, passages like Romans 9, 1-3, Romans 10, 1-4, he loved the Jews so much that he said, I could wish myself were accursed. In other words, I could wish myself to go to hell if I could see that some of my Jewish brethren might be saved. That's how much he loved them. I don't know that I love any unbeliever that much. How about you? I don't know that I love any unbeliever that much. I should. Paul is saying, far from sacrilege, I came to help my people. I came to help my people. Leads us to ask a couple of questions of ourselves. Do we love unbelievers in this way? Every one of us could say John 3.16 out loud. I'm pretty sure, right? I'm not going to go row by row and ask. So don't worry, take a deep breath, or breathe out, okay? You're okay, I'm not going to do that, but for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world so much so that he sent his son to a horrible death on the cross. Paul loved non-believers in that way. What would it take for us to love unbelievers that way? Too often, instead of love for unbelievers, we separate ourselves from them and have contempt for them. Too often we separate ourselves from unbelievers and have contempt for unbelievers. Well, so much more could be said about that. Paul, Paul is saying here, I am not the instigator. The Jews are the true instigators. And behind the charges against him. So Paul's response to them, Paul's response to the charges against him is a straightforward presentation of the gospel. I want you to notice something that as he shares here, as he shares the truths of the gospel, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, as he shares the truth of the gospel, what you'll notice here is that Paul's presentation is straightforward. There is no bitterness on his part, though he would have had a place for bitterness, right? He's been mistreated. He's been mistreated in every way you could be mistreated. And he's in for more mistreatment. But you don't see self-pity. You don't see bitterness. 
You don't see self-pity or bitterness at his accusers who are twisting the truth. You don't see self-pity or bitterness at his circumstances. And you don't see self-pity or bitterness at God. He just states the facts, just the facts. You're, you all are too young to remember this show Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am, only the facts, right? A few of you are shaking your heads. You know what I'm talking about. Last week, we used the Perry Mason theme, remember, to start out. And a few of you knew about, knew about the Perry Mason theme. So uh, we're taking a, a walk down. All you have to do is turn to channel 477, <laughs> FETV, and you get all these old shows. It's glorious. You don't have to watch the junk that's on TV today. I'm, I'm talking about the news. <laughs> 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 You can watch Leave it to Beaver. What could be better? What could be better? <laughs> or Mountain Men, even better. Right, Chris? <laughs> or Alone. Have anybody ever seen Alone? No, okay. No, we're getting off the track here really big time. <laughs> well, Paul just states the facts. And he maintains his text testimony. Well, verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, and the reason, by the way, that he was well acquainted with the way, that's too many ways in that sentence, <laughs> but the reason he was well acquainted was because he was married, <coughs> excuse me, as you'll remember, to a, <coughs> excuse me, to a Jewess by the name of Drusilla, who we'll be introduced to in just a few moments, uh, he was well acquainted with the way. He, he, he knew the goings-on with the Jews. He knew about Christianity, which was called the way at that time. Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So he granted Paul limited freedom and did an indefinite postponement. Several days later, we read in verse 24, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and, and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, I find that astounding that first of all, he would come. Now, we're going to find out that his coming was not totally without some avarice on his part. We're going to find out that he talked to Paul numerous times because he was hoping that Paul would give him a bribe. Now, think about this. Did you ever think about why do you think a prisoner was going to have the kind of money it would take to bribe him? Why? Because Paul had just said in his defense that he brought money to Jerusalem for the Jews. Felix must have been chomping at the bit when he heard that. Whoa, money. And so he wanted a, a bribe from Paul. But Paul, all, all we see Paul here in verse 25, Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Man, if there were three things that would get to the that bring would bring conviction or should bring conviction to Felix and Drusilla, it is that kind of teaching of the Word of God. 
I want you to notice that what Paul was doing, he wasn't being clever with them. What Paul was doing is he understood that people come to faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they don't believe in the Savior, of righteousness because they don't have the righteousness to go into heaven and can only get that from Jesus Christ. And those who reject the righteousness of Christ, those who reject Christ as Savior will face judgment. So the Holy Spirit, what Paul is doing here is cooperating with the Holy Spirit in, in his ministry. He's cooperating with the Holy Spirit in his talks with Felix and Drusilla. Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment. That man, they lived unrighteous lives. They lived uh, lives of, of, uh, that lacked self-control. In fact, Felix broke up Drusilla's marriage in order to marry her. She was married previously. Paul was trying to cooperate here with the Holy, Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit might bring conviction. That's what's, what's wrong with a lot of our witnessing today. It's, a lot, it's what's wrong with the way churches uh, do witnessing. And that is that we believe that if we say the right words, if we have the right plan, one, two, three, step one, step two, step three, that if we, if we say it all right and we're very clever and we bring clever arguments that we will surely convince someone to come to faith in Christ and we forget that behind all of that is the conviction of God the Holy Spirit. Without the conviction of God the Holy Spirit, no one's coming to Christ. Not, no matter how clever you and I are. People can walk aisles until they're blue in the face. If there's no conviction of sin in their lives, if there's no conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, they are not coming. They are not becoming believers. They may become believers in something, but it won't be Jesus. One writer said this, Paul turned the tables completely around and expounded the faith in Christ Jesus as it applied to Felix and Drusilla and discoursed concerning the righteousness which they did not possess, self-control or temperance which they did not exhibit, and the judgment to come which was certain to overtake them. He gave the Holy Spirit room to work. Another writer said, it is easy to see why, Paul dis why Paul's discourse our righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come makes Felix afraid. For both he and Drusilla lived wanton lives of lust and greed. Another said their relationship was based upon greed, lust, and expectations of grandeur. Now, I find something else interesting here. Paul speaks bluntly to them. Now, now put yourself in Paul's shoes. Paul's under arrest, kept in prison, though loosely guarded. His friends were allowed to take care of his needs. By the way, in those days, prisons didn't provide food or water. If a prisoner was to eat or drink, it had to be because their friends came and brought them food and water and took care of their basic necessities. But Paul speaks to them bluntly. 
Paul speaks to them bluntly. He doesn't sugarcoat the truth. I want you to see that. Paul cared more for the eternal destinies of Felix and Drusilla than he did for his own freedom and safety. Paul cared more for the eternal destinies of Felix and Drusilla than he did for his own freedom and safety. Well, so many more things we could say. Well, let me, let me say, I, I keep doing that. I keep putting aside a, a note card and say, no, I don't have time because I really don't have time. I got to get through this so we get the Christmas passage for next week. <laughs> um, talking about the fact that we need to remember that it's the Holy Spirit's conviction. One writer said, well, it was Tozer who said this, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he is not hungry nor thirsty after God. There are a lot of people walking around who are our converts, but not God's. They are our converts, but not God's. Well, Wiersbe shares four foolish, four foolish attitudes of Felix. Let me really quickly hit those. He had a foolish attitude toward God's word. He thought he could take it or leave it. He had a foolish attitude toward his sins. He knew he was a sinner, but he refused to do anything about it. He had a foolish attitude toward God's grace. He presumed on God's grace. And he, had a, he foolishly procrastinated, number four. He foolishly procrastinated. Well, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment, verse 25, to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Dr. Clarence McCartney told a story about a meeting in hell Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. It will never work, said Satan. People can look around them and see that there is a God. I'll go and tell them there is no heaven, suggested a second demon, but Satan rejected the idea. Everybody knows there's life after death and they want to go to heaven. Let's tell them there is no hell, said a third demon. No conscience, uh, no, conscience tells them their sins will be judged, said the devil. We need a better lie than that. Quietly, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved your problem, he said. I'll go to earth and tell everybody there is no hurry. And the writer concludes the best time to trust Jesus Christ is now. And the best time to tell others the good news of the gospel 
is now. Is now. Well, we find Paul now in prison for two years. And that's the story of chapter 25. Let's get into chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, uh, well, verse 27 kind of brings the conclusion here. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. He left Paul in prison. J. Vernon McGee said those two years that Paul languished in prison are silent years in the life of Paul. Perhaps he chafed under it all. We don't know. We do know that the hand of God was manifested in all this and his purposes were carried out. How comforting this can be for us when our activity seemingly comes to a standstill. In other words, in seeing how Paul dealt with these two years, these two years of waiting for a judgment, these two years of waiting for God to act, these two years of waiting for God to fulfill His promise to him that he would get to Rome. Two years. Think about how long that is to wait to have a promise from God fulfilled. But many people wait many more than two years in their lives for God to fulfill a promise. So then... We read in verse 1 of chapter 25, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Felix is replaced by Festus. Paul is imprisoned for two years and during that time, by the way, it is thought that Luke may have researched some of the things we are reading and studying in the book of Acts during that two years Festus was the pure procreator, excuse me, procurator, I'll get it right, of Judea from 58 to 62 AD. He was one of the better governors. He was just but undistinguished as a leader. He carried out the requirements of the system, but, but without making any decisions that would make him vulnerable. Wow. It's nice to have a just leader but somebody who was so timid he wouldn't do anything that would make him vulnerable to some kind of criticism by the Jews or by Rome. He visits Jerusalem seeking to establish good relations with his subjects. And also Jerusalem is the religious capital of the province. So the religious leaders, under a new chief priest, by the way, want Paul out of the way. They have a weak case against Paul, so they decide once again that perhaps if they can get him to be transferred to Jerusalem, they can kill him along the way. The high priest was now Ishmael, Ishmael, 
Ananias was still influential, but he was no longer the high priest. Again, the nation's leaders are rejecting Jesus Christ, and they seek to exploit the inexperience of Festus, but he unwittingly thwarts their plans. So in chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, we see an old trial, but the charges are old a new trial, but the charges are an old are old charges. After spending eight or ten days with them, verse six, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Same song, fourth verse. Paul's done defended himself on the steps in Jerusalem. He's defended himself in the Sanhedrin. He's defended himself before Felix. And now he will defend himself before Festus. They restate the old charges. What were they? Sedition, heresy, sacrilege. But once again, they could not produce witnesses and they couldn't prove their charges. The bottom line was that they were mad with hatred because of Paul's allegiance to Jesus Christ. They were mad with hatred because of Paul's allegiance to Jesus Christ. Well, then Paul made his defense, verse 8, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to, willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? there on those charges. You see, the problem is for, for uh, Festus is that this is a religious case and he doesn't grasp or know how to handle it. So he tries to placate the Jews, gain their goodwill without compromising Roman justice. Paul doesn't agree to the switch. Verse 11, If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die, but if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul doesn't want the switch. It's dangerous. There's no chance of a fair trial. He's already been in prison for two years. He was in the proper course. He doesn't trust that Festus won't do the wrong thing because of his inexperience. He's not afraid to die. There's no false desire for martyrdom as some of the early church fathers falsely desired martyrdom. There's no false mar call for martyrdom on his part. He appeals to Caesar, and the appeal is not due to impatience, anger, or cowardice. He didn't live that way. Paul wanted to be free. But he willingly stayed. God overruled Festus and accomplished his purposes. And as we've seen many times over the last couple of weeks, God uses circumstances to accomplish his will in our lives. Paul didn't know how he would go to Rome. He only knew that he would. God used circumstances to cause him to appeal to Caesar. Well, so much more we could say. Sometimes the dream has to die.
before God brings it to fruition. I don't know how Paul felt for those two years. We know he kept the faith. We know he kept the testimony going. But you see, it's a biblical, it's a biblical principle that sometimes God allows circumstances to overwhelm us. So we get to the point where we say in our lives, everything's against me. Let me give you a couple of quick examples, and they have to be quick. First of all, Abraham. Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he will be the father of a great nation. He was 75 years old when the promise came. It took 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. But in the meantime, Abraham and Sarah decided they'd help God. Bad idea, folks. Bad idea. But the promise came. Isaac was born. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 36, one of my absolute favorite passages of the Bible Joseph is gone as far as Jacob knows he's dead. He sent the other sons, except for Benjamin, to Egypt to get food for grain for his family. Unbeknownst to the brothers, they are encountering, they encountered Joseph, whom they sold into slavery. Joseph kept Simeon behind in Egypt and told the brothers to go home to their father and tell him that unless you bring Benjamin to me, your youngest brother, you will get no food. When they came back and told him that, that, that this leader in Egypt wanted them to bring Benjamin, Jacob's very words were, everything is against me. Now think about this. Was everything against him? He didn't realize that everything was about to come to fruition for him. Everything was about to come to fruition for him. But in his narrow focus, he said, everything is against me. You see, sometimes God allows the dream to die before fulfilling it. Moses' desire to lead, his, lead the people of Israel you know what happened to him. He killed an Egyptian who was fighting with a Hebrew and he had to flee Egypt and spent 40 years in the desert listening to sheep. Bah, bah. Can you imagine 40 years? Bah, bah. And then he had to spend another 40 years listening to the Israelites. Bah, bah. <laughs> It took 80 years for God to prepare him to have his dream fulfilled. Sometimes the dream has to die. Let me, let me just close with this. When we feel, feel overwhelmed by life circumstances, to, despite our best efforts to serve the Lord, to pray, to grow, We need to do several things. Number one, remember the biblical examples of others who felt that way. Keep doing what's right. Live responsibly. 
Keep growing in your witness and Bible study and prayer and character, Christian character. Be patient. And finally, recognize that God's way is best. We may, this is not a trite saying, it's a common saying. We may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of this passage to know that sometimes the promises are out there, the desires are out there, the dream is out there, but it's not time. Help us to be ready to trust you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.